You guys can go ahead and have them a seat. Hey, how great was that, huh? Well, hi. Not used to personal high fives as people go off the stage. Boy, it always uh, changes our worship, a little, little different, uh, but boy, kids uh, sure bring a lot of joy to the room, don't they? Pretty, pretty awesome. So, hey, we want to be a church that uh, um, proudly, I don't know where my people are because they're supposed to be bringing my, this thing, and a board. There they are, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There's, there's our worship, worship guy. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, that's, I'll get it, it's right here. All right, awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, one of those things that, uh, that we like to talk about here, and uh, at least in our circles uh, during staff meetings and whatnot, and some of the things that we'll probably continue to share as we go forward, gosh, we want to we faithfully and generously serve the next generation, right? They are so, uh, they are so amazing, and there's so much that we as, as grown-ups and adults can, uh, can learn uh, from, from that generation. So we're super pumped that God answered prayer in some pretty amazing ways and we continue to ask that God will do some awesome stuff. And I don't know, uh, Kent, if, if he's around, but uh, I don't know if this was timed perfectly or nobody else caught this, but the moment that he said we worked really hard as teenagers, it had a picture of everybody bowling, <laughs> which, which was awesome, So, which I'm sure that there was tons there. And I know that uh, um, and faithfully serving like Jesus did and being a group of people that goes to people rather than making them come to us is super valuable, super important lesson, so continue to be in prayer. So, hey, why don't you uh, just uh, join me in a time of prayer as we start uh, this morning. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for today. Thank you for, for each person here, and as I think uh, about the kids and the, the, the teenagers, I think, um, you know, just about Scripture that just says, gosh, that we want to faithfully pass along. We want to speak of the good deeds, uh, who God is and, and what He has done. We want to pass those down to the next generation, and so, Lord, I, I pray that you would use young people in a powerful way in this church, and, and uh, we just pray that you'd use them in a powerful way where they live and work and play, and the same thing for us as adults, that we we would continue to grow in our mission for you. And so, Lord, we just thank you for uh, the privilege this morning to open up your word. And as I got here this morning, gosh, there is just, just in full transparency something in my heart. And I didn't know if that was just something that was me, if it was Satan, if it was just some of the things that, that we have to say today. But whatever it is, Lord, as we transition from a time of super joy into a time of digging into your word and this serious, this serious moment as Jesus sits at the table with his disciples and shares some of his final words, Lord, I pray that you would just call our hearts to listen and that you would speak uh, to me and through me to each of us here. So, Lord, we humbly come before you and earn me pray. Amen. Um, so, I don't know um, if some of you guys remember, by the way, my name is Seth, welcome to you guys online who are joining us as well. If I've never kind of chance to meet you, I would love to, to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, some of you guys might remember uh, a couple weeks ago or however long ago I shared a story uh, about uh, garage sailing. And uh, my, my somewhat of a dislike for garage sailing, uh, well, we drove home the other day, and uh, my wife said, hey, there's a garage sale down the road. And so, uh, we, so yeah, I, I did it. I did it. I was very, it was very loving. And uh, we got uh, the whole family together, including the dog, which was a mistake. Um, <laughs> and we, you know, walked the neighborhood to these people and uh, had a great conversation. Uh, you know, Eden is, like, sitting there, like, testing out all the little car toys and then, you know, Obviously, every 10 seconds, it's like, can I have it? Can I have it? You know? And then uh, and Nikki's like checking out all the clothes, and I'm like wrangling the dog and, you know, kind of all this stuff. But in the midst of that, it was just this tremendously beautiful.
beautiful opportunity for us to engage um, with uh, somebody from our neighborhood. And so, so thankful for that opportunity and the way that we got to connect with her and talk uh, a little bit about life. Uh, in the midst of that, we made a purchase, and I'm ashamed to say that this is my first purchase of the sorts, but we found this which is an NDSU uh, jacket, so I'm ashamed to say this is my very first one, but I now have this. Welcome to the family, two years, two years in. This is all it took. This is what I should have done two years ago, right? Um, and, and the reality is, by the way, this is a really nice jacket, it's a little small, so it's incentive for me to lose a little bit of weight. Um, <laughs> some, some ulterior motives there for me. Um, but at the same time, as I was processing this, and this could be said, this is true of any university or any sport, so not just NDSU, but as I was reflecting on this this week, uh, just thinking about the power of this symbol, right? This, there's tremendous power uh, in, in this symbol. And here's what I mean by that. If you were to go uh, to, you know, to the Dome and, and watch a football game or to go to a, the basketball arena and watch a basketball game, what you're going to find is that whatever university is there, you know, here at NDSU, um, right, you're going to find two sets of people. One set is the people that are rooting for your team, and the other group of people is the people that are rooting against your team. But there's something incredibly euphoric about being together and cheering for your team. Right, like there's this camaraderie. There's something that like you wear this and you're cheering for your team, you are now automatically bonded to every other person in that room who's cheering for the same team. Right, and it's euphoric. I mean, it's, there's some, I mean like there's this collective, like it's like all of your emotions are in sync, right? Right, it's like you score, what happens? We, everybody cheers. And then if they're, and if they're like on their phone, they get jabbed, then they cheer, you know? Um, <laughs> And, uh, and if, but if something bad happens, what happens? There's this collective sigh. Like you're in tune with each other, you're in tune with the game because you're focused on one thing together. And there's one thing above everything else in that moment that bonds you to each other, right? And it's the team. So, but here's, here's, the, here's the power of the symbol, right? And here's what's, here's what's hard about this, is that you take this and you go outside the game. The game finishes, you go outside the game, and all of a sudden, if you were to, to interview every single person that came through those doors and you started asking them really any question that you wanted, but let's just use this for example, you start asking them what their thoughts are on Jesus, their unity would evaporate. The oneness and the camaraderie would deteriorate very quickly, wouldn't it? Because outside of this, we all have these things going on in our life, and we all have opinions about what those things ultimately should be. And what happens oftentimes, sadly in life, is that what we end up doing is that even though we have something so great to unite us, right, we focus on the small things that separate us. And so what we're going to find this morning in, as we continue in this series called, you know, that uh, we may be one is this idea of Jesus inviting the disciples into this oneness relationship. But here's what's so hard for us as people in today's world is that it seems like there are an unlimited amount of things that we separate on, right? It's, there's far more things that we can divide on than there are to unite in. And that's just a reality of the world that we live in. And so I have these two questions that I've kind of been kind of processing through my mind. And one is this, is that at the end of the day, what is so powerful that it can take people who are radically opposed on so many different levels and yet bring them together as one? 
The answer, of course, even though it's a Bible answer, is Jesus. He's the only thing that's that, that powerful. Jesus and the gospel message is that powerful to bring people together as one, right? And the second question is this, though, is that we're going to find today in our text is that unity for Jesus is incredibly important. He says this is very, very important. This idea of oneness is very important for his disciples. And here's the question, why? Why is that so important for Jesus? And the answer to that question is because Jesus is leaving. Right, we're at the end of Jesus' kind of career in his ministry, the end of his life, right? In that final week, he's entering into these final moments before he's, you know, betrayed and arrested and eventually killed a week later, you know? Um, and, uh, and he's gonna leave. And so for him to be at the center of all of these relationships with 12 disciples, knowing that he's gonna leave, he's got to be thinking, when I leave, man, I hope that they stay together. I hope that they can unite together around the truth that I've taught them even when I am not here. Now, granted, he's going to send and impart the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give us his word, right, that, that, we, that we rally around and behind, but at the same time, right, there's this oneness factor that Jesus ultimately wants his disciples to follow. So, um, just to, just to kind of recap, if you, if you were not here with us last week, Ken opened up our series by looking at the first five verses. And one of the things that he said, which is a great introduction, and one of the things he said was this idea of the hours. We're looking at this theme developed in John. It starts in chapter two, right? And Jesus is trying to identify the hour, the moment in his ministry when the story would leap into the next step, right? And so it's like the hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come, the hour had not yet come, and all of a sudden in John 17, we find Jesus identifying this moment, and it's not Jesus running away from or procrastinating, it's Jesus running to the right thing, to the very moment which he knew, which is his ultimate mission and purpose in life, which was his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection right? And so he's been leading up to this point. And I want to show you a picture uh, here. So this is a picture uh, of a building um, that is built over what has been identified um, as the, the location of where the upper room would have been in Jesus' time in, in, um, in Jerusalem. And so this, obviously this building is all, you know, fresh and new. That wouldn't have been the building. But this is where they've identified it. And this is our team, our group, when we were there. And as we're gathered in this place, and as you're trying to wrap your mind around this context that this is, this is a space, it's like walking to the Sea of Galilee and knowing that Jesus walked on water right where you were is crazy. To stand in the space and to know Jesus was in this space, you know, 2,000 years ago praying for his disciples in his last moments is just, is just awesome. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this picture and I want you to kind of pretend in some sense or to visualize that this board right here represents the upper room. This is the space or or the environment in which the upper room, what that, what that is, what would have taken place or represented in this board, okay? Because last, you know, last week, as Ken, you know, is, is, was opening this up for us, what we find is that Jesus enters into a prayer in this space, and what he's doing is that he's, he's making a petition, several requests 
to the Father, right, on behalf of different groups of people, himself, uh, the disciples, and the world, right? Um, but as he's making this petition, it's very, it's very important that you don't miss that everything that he prays, he prays in front of his disciples, because everything that he prays, he wants them to hear. And so, have you ever been around somebody who, like, um, they say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And you're like, sure, I would love that. And then they pray, and you're like, wow, they meant, like, they prayed that for me. <laughs> they wanted me to hear that. You ever been around those people? Right? That's very intentional. Right? It's not just a petition to God. It's like, I want you to hear this. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's modeling something that he wants his disciples to hear. And the main theme of that is unity. But he starts by talking about the idea of God's glory. Okay? Um, and God's glory, whenever you think about glory, glory is kind of this, this what feels like an incomprehensible word. Like, how do I define it? What is glory? What does that really mean? In its simplest form, here's how I want to describe it, is that glory is the sum. It's the word that we can use to sum up who God is in all of the combination of all of his attributes, in all of his deeds. This is who he is. He is glorious in his being, in his character, right? And so the things that we would describe, so I'm just going to draw this here. In the space of the upper room, right, this is what Jesus is revealing, right, is he's talking about glory, this all-encompassing all reality uh, about who God ultimately is, right? And so when we think about his attributes and his character, you think about his kindness, right? And so, you know, kindness comes into that, you know, his love, his compassion, uh, his all power, his all knowledge, right? All of these things that, that describe God enter into this circle in which encompass this idea of glory. This is who God is. He's glorious, right? But here's the problem with this. This is what's, this is what's mind-boggling for us as human beings, right? Um, what's at the center here? Well, it's God. Well, you can't see him, right? It's hard, right? Because in the Bible, God is, is referred to as spirit, meaning he is invisible. So there's this question, how do you make something visible that is invisible, right? Like you'll hurt your brain thinking about that. How do you make something visible that is invisible? And this is why the story is so significant because in comes to the story this man named Jesus. And what is so radical about Jesus is that he places himself in this same sphere of glory and says me and him are one, right? And last, last week, uh, which, which by the way, this is super, super radical because we as human beings have 2,000 years of dogma that teach us that this is true. Jesus was fully God but fully man, yeah? and yet he is co-equal, divine, co-eternal with God the Father, right? All of that stuff. We have 2,000 years that tells us that this is how that it's supposed to work. And yet, think about how radical this would be for the, for the Jewish believers, the disciples in that very first moment because this is so radical nothing like this has ever happened before, and for them to say, gosh, that we believe that this is true is life-changing, which is why it's lasted thousands of years to us today. 
It's life-changing to think about this. And so if you remember that Ken said last week, and he used this kind of this illustration, thinking about a mirror versus a window. When you hold a mirror in front of you and you look at yourself, right? When I see that, I, I think honestly about the things that I like about myself, and then I think about all the things that I wish were different about myself. But underneath all of that, with having nothing to do with how I look, is who I am. And who I am is meant by God's design to be a reflection of who God is because we are created in the image of God, and we do it imperfectly, and because we are broken, messy people who struggle every day, right? And so we, we mirror that a little bit. But for Jesus, as he enters into the space, it's like he's becoming a window for us. And so he says, if you want to see the Father, look at me, right? And all of a sudden, the invisible becomes visible in Jesus, you want to know the Father, then know me, right? And it's this very powerful moment. And what is going to happen in today's text then is that Jesus, as he looks at, as he's describing this, that we are one together, he's describing this perfect oneness. There's no hurt. There's no harm. There are, there's no gossip. There's no sarcasm. There's no meanness. There's no brokenness, right? There is this, this mutual respect and love and submission and sacrifice that, gosh, if this is what you need, I will sacrifice myself for the sake of that. That's what he's describing is this perfect relationship, and everything in this prayer stems from what Jesus has from the Father. And what he's going to do is that he's going to create this, this new space this new environment in our passage where he invites the disciples into this same relationship. Do you get that? Right, that's where we're at in, in John uh, 17. Um, and so here's the deal. Um, this, is, this is one of those moments where I, I, I kind of wish, like, well, just, just know, keep in mind that Jesus is at the table Post, you know, the Last Supper, you know, he's hours away from, you know, being betrayed and arrested and all this stuff. So this is a very serious moment for Jesus, right? And so there's a piece of me that at times like this, I just kind of wish that Jesus would crack a joke, you know, and help us like ease into it. But the reality is, is that this is super serious for Jesus because he's sharing his final words, some of his final words with his disciples. And so he's going to say some things about oneness. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John 17, uh, chapter chapter, uh, excuse me, John 17, verse 6. And here's how he starts, right? He, he kind of sums up all this as he starts in. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, there's so many things uh, in this that I wish we could just do 10 weeks on, but we can't. So here's what I want you to hear, is that I want you to keep track as we kind of go through this passage, keep track of the, uh, the word to give, because it's very important for John. 76 times in the gospel, John talks about giving, and it happens 17 times in John 17. So that's easy to remember, 17 in 17, right? And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's going to identify and highlight that every Everything that God has, he gives to Jesus. But here's the key. Everything that Jesus then has, he gives to us. Did you get that? 
right? And so I want you to identify that this is about going back to and pointing back to this perfect relationship that Jesus ultimately has with, uh, with the Father. And the first thing that he does is that he starts by manifesting his name, right? And so it's like he's talking about the glory, and he's manifesting and revealing to them, this is who God is. This is who God is, and therefore, this is who I am as well, right? But this is who God is. And the, God's, the idea of name is, is strange for us because we don't think about it this way. Um, but in Hebrew, a name, when you are named something and you hear it, that is a symbol and a representation for everything that you are and who you are really, like, as a core being, you know? And so, like, you're like, hey, what's your name? And I'm like, hey, Seth. They're like, cool, that's it, you know? There's nothing else. There's nothing more. You're a bald guy, you know? Um, and so the name idea or concept is different for us, but the name doesn't go, it's like it's, this is not new information. You go all the way back to 1 Kings, and God enters into the story with this prophet Elijah, and he says, here's my name. It's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, right? Which means I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. I will do what I will do, which gives you this glimpse into how God identifies himself and how he actually operates and works within the world as we know it. So the name is not disfamiliar to them, but what Jesus is doing that is so special, and don't miss this, is he's saying, you know him as Yahweh, I know him because I existed with him before the world began. So when he's manifesting and revealing the name, he's saying, guys, this is very personal. This is who he is, and I know because he and I are one. Is very personal, very powerful that he's revealing the name to his disciples, right? And who does he, do, who does he reveal to? He reveals to the disciples. But here's the tension, and this is what's going to come up over and over um, kind of throughout this text, is because, remember, here, here we are in the upper room, and this represents um, like the spiritual family, the, those adopted by God or, you know, whatever that, how you want to think about that, right? This is the spiritual family. Where do the disciples come from. They come from this other circle that's called the world, right? And so what Jesus is going to do is that he's going to help us understand that there's this stark contrast between the world, what happens here, and what happens here, right? And this is what is ultimately going to come down to in the end, but Jesus identifies and acknowledges that the 12 disciples came from from this space and are being invited into this space, okay? So that's, that's super important, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But what Jesus is doing is he's inviting these people into this process is that he's centering everything around your word, um, around God's word, the word that was given to Jesus from the Father. So when you, hear, when you see the word word, it's a singular in this chapter. It's referring to the idea of the, the, the entirety or the whole gospel message. And so what Jesus is ultimately doing is that he's inviting these disciples to believe, to believe in who he is, where he came from, and what he came to do. That's what he's inviting them to do. And this is where oneness starts, is in this idea of believing, right? Okay, so here's what happens. Verse 7, here's the result uh, of this. It says, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. I love that this is a process um, because by saying now they know implies that there's a time in which they didn't know. 
right? And so Jesus, who's been investing in the lives of these people, has had all these conversations and all these things that have happened over the course of three, three, four years, whatever that looks like, and there comes this moment in the midst of that that they, as people, as disciples, become utterly convinced that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And here's how. Look at this process in verse 8, right? In verse 8, it says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Okay, now words plural is different from word as in the gospel message. Words plural here means utterances or conversation. You see, what, what Jesus is identifying is that there are so many wow factors about Jesus. Like, like how many of you guys have ever seen somebody walk on water? No? Nobody? Nobody raise hands? How many of you have ever seen somebody uh, raise someone from the dead? Nope, probably not. Um, how many of you guys have seen uh, somebody feed 20,000 people with a few fish and a few pieces of bread? Anybody? No. Why? Because there are these wow factors that surround Jesus that point people to Jesus, that he is who he says he is. But what Jesus identifies in this is that this, there's this middle in-between ground that the disciples had with Jesus, and it's just about conversation. From beginning to end, it's the normal conversation that led his disciples to believe. Do you get that? normal conversation that led them to believe, right? And here's their, here's their conviction at the end of that, right? It says, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me, right? And, and as, you, as, you think, as you think about this, um, picture this in your mind. How many of you guys have ever met someone uh, who was really interested in a significant other of somebody, some other form um, or was dating somebody? And as you observe as a bystander on the outside of that relationship and as you look in, the one person is just madly in love with this person. You go, really? Them? You ever do this? Maybe it's just me, okay, I'm sorry. I've never thought that about any of you, okay? So, so but here's the deal, right? Like you look at this and you go, well you can identify that there are some serious things that need to be addressed or some major growth areas that need to be addressed, but the person who's in love doesn't see that. It's so easy to overlook it. They're so enamored by the person, right, um, that they miss it. Here's my point, okay? Um, the disciples spending time with Jesus was not like that. It's not like the disciples were so enamored with Jesus that they overlooked his faults. That's not the case. Because here's what happens. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. Because when you are very serious about the idea of marriage or whatever that is, you're not just trying to ignore the faults, you're looking for them. Because at the end of the day, the question that you have to be able to answer is, do the things that drive me crazy, and we all have them, do those things outweigh the good things that I love about that person, or is it the opposite? Because if I love things about them more than that, then I know that that's good, right? And so here's my point, is that as the disciples spent time with Jesus, these people more than anything would have been able to see if Jesus was a fraud. 
And yet at the end of four years of ministry, day in and day out, you know what they said? There's no other explanation than that he is one with God. That's the only explanation. He has no faults. He's perfect in every way. I believe with full conviction that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to do what he said that he came to do, right? That is radical, radical confidence and radical belief in Jesus that you and I, this is where oneness starts, right? Because belief in who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, right? Belief in that is when we enter into this space and this is where oneness begins, because we are one in the gospel. We are one in that truth, right? But it's not just believing in this that makes oneness happen, because that is a one-time thing, right? What happens the next day when your spouse annoys you? Like, what happens like when all that blah, 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 blah stuff happens, right? right? And the moment that we remove ourselves from this space and come out here is the moment that we are thwarted with every other kind of temptation that would cause me to not be unified with somebody else. Right? And so that's what Jesus does here in this moment, is that he's going to invite them not just into believing in the name of God, this is who God is, and this is our relationship. He asks the Father that you, he would keep the disciples in his name. Look at verse 9. This is how it starts. He says, I am praying for them. Now, I just want you to remember, so he's talking to the disciples, right? He's praying in front of the disciples. I just want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. And I want you to think, what would it have been like to sit in this space and to listen to Jesus, the Son of God, creator of the universe, pray over you? Think about how much comfort there is in that and how powerful that is that you sit in Jesus like praying right over you. He says, I pray for them. He says, here's the deal. I'm not praying for the world. I pray for them. And you're like, what? That doesn't sound right. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? Jesus loves the world. Well, absolutely. But what Jesus is doing is he's setting up the next part of the prayer. But what he's doing is that he's focusing in on these 12 disciples right here, right now, the guys that he's been doing life with for four years. And he's like, I remember the time. I remember the time when we're walking on that road and you guys argued about who would sit at my right hand. Unity, oneness, nah. Right? I remember that one time when the kids came to me, right? And you're like, ah, forget about the kids, focus on the adults because that's what matters. He's like, no, that's not the case. He's like, he knows these people and he prays for their oneness. He knows exactly what's going on in these guys' life because this has been his table for years and years and years. And the reason for his prayer is that Jesus knows that he's leaving. And he wonders, what is life going to look like for these 12 disciples when I am gone? Will you as disciples still cling to the truth in the same way as if I was right here to solve the problem with you? It's a powerful thing. And so here's his question in verse 11. Here's what he says. And I am no longer in the world, but they 
are in the world, and I am coming to you. See, he knows that he's leaving. He knows that he's going to be the Father, going to the Father, and he's going to live with him, right, with the glory that he had before the world even began. He's going back right here. But where are the disciples? They're still right here. They're still right here. And so what Jesus asks, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And that's key, right? Because he says, here's the deal, right? It's, it's, it's all about location. Because when you are in this space, guess what you're absorbing? The character and the attributes and, and the way like of God. And this is how we treat each other when we're in this space, right? And he says, I want them to be one in the same way that we are are one in this harmonious, right relationship. And he knows that when he leaves, the temptation for us is that we will separate and come out of that space. And the moment that we do is the moment we allow other things to become central in our life. And the gospel no longer is the primary narrative in our world. And we don't treat each other in the way that God envisioned that we treat each other. What does Jesus say to his disciples? By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. It's so powerful and yet was so easy for us to miss, right? Belief gets us into this space, but being kept in this space is what continues our oneness. It's what continues unity when we remain in that space because we are designed for dependence and we, we are constantly going to be trying to unite with other people and lesser things that will never work the moment we step out of this space. NDSU football, Nebraska football, the Cubs, whatever it is, never will provide the same unity that this provides right here, that same oneness. And what Jesus knows is that in this moment, he says, guys, here's the deal. I know that it is, it is you are destined to disagree, right? That, that is inevitable, that you are going to disagree. But here's what I needed to know, is that right here, this is the most satisfying space you can ever be. And for us as people, right, we want to exit out of that, and we want to fight for all those side things, and yet we miss what's most important in life. And what Jesus says, guys, here's what I want you to do. When I'm gone, I want you to remember how we operate, how we, God and Jesus, how we do this together, and I want you to have the same thing. I long for you to have the same thing, and yet we are convinced that we can fight for our different angles, and yet Jesus says, no, the most satisfying place you can ever be is right here, right? It doesn't mean that we don't disagree. We know that that's inevitable, right? But we choose that when we discuss, when we debate, uh, and when we disagree, that we will not divide because we will keep the main thing, the main thing, and that it will not subvert our love for each other, and it will not subvert our mission in this world. You know, one of the things, and I say this, I say this somewhat uh, carefully because I want us 
just be gentle on this, but as we think through the pandemic and everything that happened in the pandemic, you look at the way that the world responded. I don't think any of us should be surprised by the way the world acted when the pandemic hit. Why? Because they're in the world. They don't have Jesus. What was surprising was the way that the church, the large C church acted in the pandemic because we didn't love people, because we didn't love each other. And here's what's interesting to me, and I say this just reflectively, I think we learned more about the church during the pandemic than we learned about the world. And that's a hard reality. And what Jesus is inviting us into is oneness. He says, you and I can have this oneness, this belief together in the gospel. And there's this oneness and this unity in how we treat each other. But more than that, there's this one final thing that Jesus says that he's going to send them off in. And he says, there's this unity, this oneness in our purpose. Look at verse 13, right? Here's what he says. He says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see here, he's continuing this contrast. Here's the deal. Here's what he knows. Here's where the disciples are. Where's Jesus right now? He's still here. He has a limited time and space that's remaining with his disciples in this space. And here's what he says, I want you to know. I want to tell you these things because I want you to have, in the midst of this, though you are still here and though I am leaving, I want you to have the joy that I have because this is who I am. And that will surpass any troubles that will come your way, even the hatred of the world. And I think it's interesting, and again, I say this carefully and sensitively, but when you think about what Jesus is talking about, what he's identifying is that the world will hate us because of the gospel. And in today's world, it's sad to say that we are hated for a wide variety of reasons that are different from that. One being that we don't love people, don't care for people, and don't love each other. And that's painful for us, and that breaks my heart, and I think it breaks probably all of our hearts because it's something that is prevalent in the world, and I think that we probably all see this. But here's the thing, is that Jesus, as he enters into this story, as he's finishing his prayer, he's not gonna say, here's what he's not gonna say, I'm gonna make life easy for you, I'm gonna take you out of the world. In fact, he prays the opposite. Here's what he says. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but rather that you keep them from the evil one. You see, here's the tension that Jesus is really ultimately setting up in his prayer. He says, this is the spiritual reality. This is the family that I have called you into, right? You as disciples can have what God and I have in this relationship. But here's the deal. You are still in the world, but you're not supposed to be of the world, in the world, but not of the world. Do you see the tension? You see why this is so hard? How does this work? How are we supposed to do this? Because it's so easy for us as Christians to seclude ourselves from the world and to become cuddly with our Bibles and to do this. Or it's equally, if not more easy, for us to blend into the world and to become indistinguishable. 
from the world. And what Jesus says is, in fact, both. He says, I want to overlay these, and I want you to be in it, but not of it. In it, but not of the world. You see how significant that this actually is. He invites us into this overlap. You see, this is what Jesus is saying. I think, just paraphrase, very simply. This is who I want you to be, and this is where I want you to be. This is who, this is where. That's the prayer that Jesus has over his disciples. And and, and all of that stems back to this idea that they may be one even as we are one. It all comes back to the Father. It all comes back to the relationship that they have had for all of eternity. That's what Jesus wants for his people. Check this out. He makes one final request in verse 17. Through 19. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, this is key, don't miss this, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Right? Because there's this this sense of holiness. Holiness is to be set apart. And so when Jesus is talking about sanctification or holiness, what he's ultimately saying is that this is what it means to be in the world but not of it. Because you can be in this space and yet be informed by everything that is here through this. This is your truth. This is how I become holy in a place that is unholy. Right? But here's, and I guess, and I want you to hear this, right? Because Jesus is saying, I want you to be sent. And so, again, carefully say this, but this is where many Christians get it wrong is that personal holiness is not about being cuddly with my Bible. Personal holiness is not the end goal. Personal holiness is a means to an end, which is the idea of living sent. And the only way that I can live sent in an appropriate way in this tension is if I am being made holy. If God, through his word, is setting me apart for the mission that he's called me to in the space that he's called me to be. It's a powerful image for us to think about that we would be people who distinguish what the world is about and be like Jesus to engage it, that we are sent like Jesus and that we are patterned after Jesus. How was Jesus sent? To save lost people, to save a group of people who were desperately in need, which is why the next week, what we're gonna finish with in this prayer is that Jesus creates this new level of his prayer in which he prays for the world. But what he's praying for specifically is that there's an invitation from the disciples to the world and that those who believe from the world, those who, whoops, those who believe from this space will then become in this space and that they will be one as they are one and as they are one that we would be in right relationship, this unified, right relationship with God, with each other, and the mission that he's ultimately called us to. Here's where it gets tedious, and here's where it gets messy, is that 
This is a hard reality for us because we know that we're in the world but not of it. What becomes really tricky is that when we as Christians allow the principles of this world to dictate the principles of this world. You see, think about the principle over here that uh, I deserve to be happy. What happens when that principle invades this space? It doesn't work, does it? And so we, as people, or as the disciples, had to make a choice. Do I want this world, or do I want this one? Or do I want the blend? Because that's what Jesus is inviting us to. But we have to be careful. The disciples had to be careful. Because the moment that we lose focus of the gospel is the moment we move out of this space and other things in life become more important than belief in the gospel. And our belief in the gospel is real. It doesn't change my salvation, but it changes how I interact with the world. Because the gospel is not as important as other things in this world. And what Jesus is offering his disciples is the opportunity for oneness. I want to see these, these three things just kind of in sum as we wrap, wrap up and Bray will come just lead us in a time of, of worship and just respond and worship. Um, one is just our, like our, 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 we, are, we, should, we are called to be one in our belief of the gospel, right? That that is primary. Um, second is that, that we are called to be one in how we treat each other, right? And so there's this belief, right, in how we treat each other as, as if we're kept in this same space, right? And that we are called to be one in our mission, which is the idea of being sent. Our mission isn't personal holiness. Our mission is personal holiness that leads to the idea of being sent in a lost world, right? And here's my thought, and here, as, just as I was wrapping up this morning, this is something that came to me, is that without any of these three, the disciples in their time would have been an utterly lost and confused group of people who either believed different things or claimed different truths or that they treated each other however they like and that they were scattered in their mission. And so here's my three application points just as we finish. This very simple. This correlates to each of those. As, as when you are tempted in, in life, as you move forward this week and next week or whatever it is, and it's something on social media, which is such an explosive hotbox, or if it's in conversation with somebody, and you are tempted to divide over something, can I encourage you to think about this? The gospel, first and foremost, needs to be our primary narrative in this world. And how we treat each other, God's character needs to be our character. These type of attributes need to define us, not the things that are defined over here by the world. And lastly, Jesus' mission needs to be our mission. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, Heavenly Father, as we wrap up this time, the image of the, the football game or the the, the collegiate setting or uh, a high school, you know, basketball arena or whatever it is, wherever we would picture ourselves, that, that we would be reminded that, that when we focus on the, the right things, that there is this tremendously powerful, right, euphoric experience to be a part of the church.
because we are all worshiping the same God, believing that, that gospel message and that we treat each other in the way that, that, that Christ and God treated each other and that we would not let anything in this life subvert us in our oneness of those things, especially then as a result, our commitment to the people around us as we see the mission of God restored. God, you are a good God, and we don't deserve anything that you give us. And for any, any way in which we experience oneness, that is an act of divine grace that you have gifted and bestowed upon us. And Lord, man, we long for that with all of our heart and with all of our being, along with the disciples who had every opportunity to engage in the oneness that Jesus himself invited them into and for us to know and long for that place which is more satisfying than any other place. Amen.